Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. We took a brief hiatus last week, but this week we're back in 1 Peter. And if you remember back to two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And this is the place where Peter begins to turn his focus. He turns his focus to how we are to live as exiles in this world, in this culture. Remember, we are beloved and precious in the sight of God, but with respect to our culture, we ought to expect to be strangers and aliens. But Peter doesn't say what we might expect him to say on the heels of that. He doesn't say that since the world around us is pagan, we should overthrow the culture and establish God's kingdom here on earth. He also doesn't say that since the world around us is pagan, we should go hide out in a cave until Jesus comes back. No, instead of either of those extremes, he commands us to live in this culture, in this society that Jesus has sent us into. Remember, verse 12 says that our conduct is among the Gentiles. We are called to live in this world. Jesus explicitly prays to the Father in John 17 that he would not take his disciples out of the world. But Peter tells us that in this world, we should keep our conduct honorable so that when those who hate us and hate Jesus see our good deeds, they might change. They might be softened. They might stop calling Christians evildoers. And instead, they might themselves bow the knee to Christ and glorify God on the day of His visitation. God calls us to be holy in this world that is often hostile to Christ and His people. And our holiness is meant to be a light pointing others to Jesus. It's what Peter said in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Today, we see the first of three sections that he gives that give legs to that vision. Verses 13 to 17 talk about how Christians ought to relate to the governing authorities of this world. Verses 18 to 25 tell how Christians' slaves or servants should relate to their masters or bosses. And Peter especially focuses there on how we are to relate to masters and bosses who are cruel and unjust. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he tells how wives and husbands ought to relate to each other. And the primary example given is a Christian wife whose husband is an unbeliever. Each of those three sections begin with this phrase, be subject to or submit to. And already some of us have the hairs on the back of our neck standing up when we hear that phrase. Ooh, subjection. Submission, we do not like those words. But this is why it's so important for us to do what we do every Sunday. In a moment, I'm going to read God's Word and I will end it with, this is the Word of the Lord. And y'all will respond with, thanks be to God. Every word of Scripture is breathed out by God. Every word is what John 6 calls the words of eternal life. They are life-giving words. And our fear, when we hear those words submit, be subject to, is that our humanity 
our dignity, our freedom are being lessened. But God's law is not the path to death. It is the path to life and freedom and fullness of joy. We don't just need to be reminded of that truth this morning. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to see it and believe it. So let's pray before we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear Your Word and believe it. Overcome our stubborn hearts, Lord, and show us Your path of life. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. I'm going to begin in verses 11 and 12 just to give us some context. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see three things as we work through this text today. First, we're going to see that straightforward command that we are to submit to the governing authorities. Second, we're going to ask the question, why? Why does God tell us to do this? And then thirdly, we're going to ask, what does this look like? And we're going to see what the text tells us. Let's begin by reading again what Peter says we are called to do. Look at verses 13 to 14 with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Christian, you have people in the society that you live in who have authority over you. Let that sink in for a second. You have people in this society that you live in who have been given authority over you. Peter mentions the emperor The Greek word is basileus, which is most often translated king. He follows it up with the word supreme, highest, the authority that exceeds all other authorities. Here in America, we don't have an emperor or a king in that position. We have a president and a vice president. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are in those positions of authority. You are called to be subject to them. Peter also mentions governors, 
which would be lesser magistrates, the various other local authorities. For us, that would be our state governor, Bill Lee, and Shane McFarland, the mayor of Murfreesboro, or Bill Ketron, who's the mayor of Rutherford County. Or if you live elsewhere, you have other local leaders. You are called to be subject to these people who are in these positions. Now, we need to ask what it means to be subject to or to submit to. Those words have pretty bad connotations for us. We usually think of submitting after we have been dominated or humiliated. In mixed martial arts, a fighter submits when his opponent has him in a hold that he can't possibly get out of. It brings to mind helplessness. But submit, hupotasso in the Greek, didn't have that sharp negative connotation. It does convey that someone in authority can give orders that others ought to follow, but the word doesn't have the same meaning as obey. It's somewhat milder. The call to submission is not a call to uncritical or automatic obedience. To submit means to arrange one's life under the authority or guidance of another. Later, Peter is going to tell us to honor the emperor. And there we see this milder element as well. Honor most certainly does not mean worship. It is respect for the position they have been given and living under authority as far as you are able. It needs to be said that submission to presidents, kings, and governors doesn't preclude or reject the possibility of civil disobedience. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, commands the Hebrew midwives to kill any baby that is born to the Hebrews. The Hebrew midwives disobey Pharaoh. They let the babies live. And the text explicitly says that God rewarded the Hebrew midwives for their actions. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in exile in Babylon. And they are put in the king's court. They comply with the king and they even help the king. But as soon as he commands them to worship an idol or to pray to him, these believers refuse. And God protects them supernaturally in their obedience and their consequent punishment. Lastly, in Acts 5, the Jewish authorities arrest the apostles for preaching the gospel of Jesus in the temple. They command them not to teach these things anymore. And Peter responds by saying, we must obey God rather than men. So they continue to preach and they bear the punishment that comes with it. Murder and idol worship and refusing to speak the name of Jesus are wrong. They're against God's law in various ways. When human authorities command you to disobey God, you're required to disobey them. Submit, be subject to, is not a command to blind obedience. However, it is still a command. When your governing authorities make laws that do not cause you to disobey God, you are called to obey them. 
You're called to yield your desires to the authority that God has given them. This can be something as small as breaking the speed limit because it's ridiculous that they made this road a 35. Or it can be something as big as fudging on your taxes because I know the government wastes most of this money anyway. God has commanded you to be subject to your governing authorities. Are you? But notice that God's command isn't just about your actions. There's also an emotional command. There's a command about your attitude. Verse 17 ends with honor the emperor. To honor is to show respect, to give the proper weight to their position. This doesn't mean you have to like them, and it certainly doesn't mean that you can't disagree with them. In a democracy like ours, there is even a place for voicing that disagreement and criticism. However, reviling, slandering, mocking, name-calling, whether publicly or privately, is not honoring and respecting the authorities God has put over you. And you may be saying, Mitchell, do you have any idea what kind of person or people we have leading us? Or if you really like the people who are leading us, just wait a few years and think about that person or go back a few years and think about that person. Do you have any idea what they're like? There's no way I can honor him or her. Or maybe you look at that phrase in verse 14 that says what civil rulers are supposed to do. They are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And you see that And you say, that's a fine idea, but we live in a time where the government does the opposite. It praises evil and it punishes good. How in the world can I submit to and honor someone like that? Those difficulties are real, even if they are a bit overstated. The place that our culture is in today is very different than the place that it was in 50 years ago. Some of that has been for good, but some of it has also been for bad. However, as we wrestle with that and those questions, we must consider another question. Do you know who the Roman emperor was when Peter wrote this? It was Nero. Nero ruled Rome from 54 AD to 68 AD. He's well known for his wickedness and excess. He was a pagan who vehemently hated Christians. One example of his wickedness is that he probably, though it's not been proven, set fire to an urban area in Rome that burned houses, shops, and people for a total of nine days before it got under control. It's believed that he did this intentionally, to clear space enough to build a new palace and landscape that he would call his golden house. It destroyed about two-thirds of the city of Rome. He ended up blaming the fire on the Christians and used it as an excuse to punish and even kill Christians in Rome. And Peter says, honor him. Submit to him. John Calvin, living in the 16th century, which saw its fair share of tyrannical rulers, comments on this verse and says, it may be objected here, and said that kings and magistrates often abuse their power 
and exercise tyrannical cruelty rather than justice. Such were almost all the magistrates when this epistle was written. But the ordinance of God ever remains in force. Why? Why would we possibly, as Christians, submit to the authority of someone so evil? Or even someone who has a different understanding of the world, of humanity, and of the common good than I do? Why should I submit to and honor that kind of person? These verses don't just tell us what we are to do. They also tell us our motive. We are to submit to these leaders, not for their own sake, but for the Lord's sake. Read verses 13 to 16 with me again, with an eye on the motive that God gives for how we should live. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter seems to anticipate that some Christians might object that commanding us to submit to human authorities, especially those who aren't believers, threatens our freedom in Christ. They might say, doesn't Paul say that our citizenship isn't here, but is now in heaven? Didn't Peter begin this letter by saying that we are exiles and sojourners in this world? If so, how can we be commanded to subject ourselves to the institution of this world if we are free? Peter's answer is, yes, you are free. But you are not free from everything. What are you free from? What have you been liberated from if you are a Christian? The bondage of sin and Satan? The curse of the law? Freed from the sting of death? Freed from the fear of eternal punishment? You are freed from those things. Praise God that everyone who is in Christ is freed from the fear of condemnation on the last day. But do not misunderstand the purpose of all of that freedom. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Biblical freedom is not the same as the world's freedom. The world's definition of freedom is summed up well in the words of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, In 1992, this is what he says. At the heart of liberty, the heart of freedom, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Let me read that again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That definition of freedom says that you are free from everything. You are your own. You are free from every constraint. Brothers and sisters, that is not what Scripture is talking about 
when it tells us that we are free. Biblical freedom is never autonomy. It is never utter independence or liberty from all constraints. Biblical freedom is the ability to live as God intended for you to live. Biblical freedom is the ability to live as God intended for you to live. Remember, God's ways, His paths are the path of life. They aren't arbitrary. They direct us into the good way. They are the good life. Sin has plunged us into misery that always leads to the death that accompanies it. That's why it is good news when the prophet Ezekiel says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Our old hearts, our unregenerate wills were enslaved to sin. Sin that leads to misery and death. God has freed us by giving us hearts that love Him and love His law and are able to walk in it. That's why it's so ridiculous and atrocious for a Christian to use their freedom as a cover-up for evil. True freedom is living a life of joy in Christ. The joy that's found in fellowship with Him and walking in His ways. As Peter says again and again, the path that Christ walked is one of humility, lowering himself. He humbled himself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, and took on the form of a servant. So we too, in our freedom, are to be servants. So what does this look like? What does it look like in this culture? in a sometimes hostile world, to live as those who are slaves to God and free from the tyranny of sin. Peter is not naive about the struggles that we will have. In verse 12, he told us that people around us would speak against you as evildoers. And here in verse 15, he reminds us of that by talking about the speech of ignorant, foolish people. These are scoffers. These are people who see the way you are living and don't praise you, but revile you and mock you. In chapter 4, we're told more about why they do this. It's not just their ignorance. Peter says that as Christians, we have given up doing the things that unbelievers want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And then he says, with respect to this, they that's unbelievers, are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They mock you. God tells you that if you are a Christian, you should expect that people will be mad that you don't live the way that they live. They will be mad when you say no to sin. They will be mad when you say that freedom isn't autonomy. It's being a slave to God. Christian, you should expect hostility. So what should you do when that happens? What can we possibly do when the culture around us accuses us of bigotry and immorality and hatred and backwoods living? 
God tells us to do good. Do good. Look at verse 15. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good... Now stop there for just a moment. What is the will of God for you? To do good. Remember, good living is always defined according to God and His law. He's not telling you to bow to what culture says is good. His will is that you live a holy and righteous life. His will is that you walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You have been saved from the penalty and the power of your sins. You have been united to Jesus. He has washed you clean. Now what? Abide in Him. Follow His law with joy and peace and humility, not so that you can earn His favor, but because He has graciously already given you His favor. And He has freed you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. In a hostile society, God commands us to silence the slander of those who malign our actions and to silence them with good works. Someone accuses you of being homophobic and hating those who are gay because of what you believe. Put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by loving them, by caring for them, by telling them the love of Jesus as you have opportunity. Prove them wrong. If you're accused of being dour and boring and lifeless and that awful word puritanical, because you don't participate in the debauchery of the world, do good by following God's law. His law says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Glorify God and enjoy Him. Prove them wrong. If people slander you saying that Christians don't care anything about the world, Prove them wrong. Offer prayers, supplications, and intercessions for kings and all who are in high positions. Love your neighbor as yourself. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's expectations are not overly optimistic, at least not in the short term. He doesn't say that we will be praised by the world for our good works. He doesn't say that people will flock to churches when they hear that we're praying for the world. He doesn't say that we will transform the culture and bring about God's kingdom on earth. He has a different aspiration. He says, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Why does Peter care about the reputation of the church in the world? Have you wondered that? Why does he care what people outside the church think of the church? Why is he concerned about people slandering us and mocking us and calling us evildoers? There are two reasons that he's given. The first is that the church is Jesus' body on earth. So when we look evil to the society around us, Jesus looks evil. In Romans 2.24, Paul is talking about Jews who talk about the law all the time, but then disobey it. 
And he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In 2 Peter 2, Peter talks about false teachers coming into the church and encouraging wicked living. And he says the result is that many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way we live as Christians is a reflection on the God that we serve and bear witness to. If you're a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. How are you reflecting Jesus with your words and actions and Facebook posts? Take special note of how you have reflected Him as a citizen of this world. How have you treated the governing authorities? Are you reflecting the humility of Christ? Now you may be sitting here wallowing in guilt, thinking, I have not honored others by my actions and my words. I have been a bad witness to Christ. What can I possibly do? You do what you do whenever you sin as a Christian. Confess your sins. Ask for God's forgiveness and repent. Trust in Jesus. He has fully paid for all your sins. Your sins, no matter how grievous or public they are, are not beyond His reach. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And then put on Christ. You have been freed so that you might follow in His steps. There's one more reason Peter gives for why we should care about how the world around us thinks about us. Again, We care much more about being precious in the sight of God than being slandered by the world around us. But that doesn't mean we don't care at all. Peter says we should care about what, what the world around us thinks of us because we want them to know Jesus. Remember the goal Peter mentions at the end of verse 12. God wants people to see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives a long discourse about what it means to be free in Christ and about what rights we have as Christians. And his crescendo is that the purpose of that freedom, the goal of Christians is to give up our rights so that by all means I might save some, he says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Brother, sister, the goal of your freedom in Christ is not insisting on your own rights. It's not getting yours and avoiding pain and suffering. The goal of your freedom in Christ is that others who are slaves of sin and in bondage to misery might also be free and might know the eternal life that is found in Jesus. Let that be our vision. Let that be our hope and let that be evident in the way we live our lives in this world. Would you all pray with me? Father, who among us is sufficient for these things? The answer is not one. So we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would enable us, that you would not just give us the ability to do good, but you would help us to long to do good, that we would hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. Only you can do that. Send your Holy Spirit now that He might enliven our hearts to love others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.